We haven't met, and I'm one of the pastors here at KCP, and we're glad you're here. Glad you're here for worship. This morning, we are going to finish up our uh, summer series in the psalm, in the Psalms by looking at one final attribute uh, of God that comes forth in the Psalms, one characteristic of God's nature that really shines forth throughout the Psalms, but in particular in Psalm 146, and that attribute of God is his justice, that God is a God of justice. So if you think about justice right now in our world, it's, um, it's pretty hot, <laughs> loaded idea. This is a really important topic for us to hit this morning. Uh, this is an incredibly important theme of Scripture because, for a lot of reasons, one, many people would accuse the Bible uh, as being used by Christians sort of throughout history as a means of oppression and injustice. Doesn't the Bible advocate uh, for slavery? Doesn't it advocate for the oppression of women? Um, what's the deal with justice there? And then we would know that even now today in our culture, because of the way this word is so hot and loaded, that it can be incredibly confusing and polarizing to get our heads around. What exactly do we mean when we're talking about justice? And we realize that there's all these affiliations and associations that get brought into this word so that when you say justice and someone else says it, you may mean two totally different things. So our question this morning is, if there is, a God of God, if there is a God of justice, then he should probably be the one that gets to define what justice is really all about. That in a world where meanings shift and change based on how individuals or groups of people use words or have meanings or attach things to words, we would say that Psalm 119 says that God's word is eternal. His word stands forever. So God's word is the anchor. God's word is the plumb line that we need to discover when it comes to this idea of justice. So how can we understand and speak into this important theme in our world today of justice? I want to read uh, Proverbs 2. It should be on the screen. And uh, think about the posture of your heart as you come in this morning as we get ready to hear from God's word. Here's what Proverbs 2 says. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield. He guards the paths of justice. Verse 8, he watches over the ways of his saints. And then listen to verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So listen. As the people of God, whenever... There is confusion in our culture. Whenever in our communities it feels like the world is coming apart at the seams around us, we would say as the people of God, this is home base. 
This is the word of God. It stands eternal. It stands firm. And so we look to God's word to define for us what biblical justice is really all about. So that there's not confusion. So that instead we can hear from the Lord knowledge and understanding coming forward from his mouth. If we want to understand what justice really is, biblical justice rooted in the heart and the character of God then we need to do what this passage that we read is telling us to do, to become attentive, to incline our ear, to listen, to open up our hearts, to treasure and store up the word of God. And then when we do that, we will find the opposite of injustice and oppression. We will find a God whose concern for justice is so grand and beautiful that he guards the paths of true justice, verse 8, and that in him... As we understand this, then we'll be able to offer justice and love and equity to the people around us without fear. And that's what I want for us as a group, as a congregation, as the people of God. But this passage tells us that we have work to do this morning, that we have to seek it like silver, that that we have to call out, that we have to make our ears attentive to his word. So why don't we take a minute and pray? And ask that God would help us to do just that as we study his word this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and that it instructs, that it makes us wiser than our enemies, that it is firm and eternal and it stands the test of time. And that whatever clarity you would give us about the places in life that are confusing, uh, that is to become our anchor our sure foundation, and we pray that would be true for us today as we approach this this tough theme, this controversial theme, this uh, felt need in our communities today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we remember that when you walked the earth, every time you encountered someone with your words, they were challenged or convicted or encouraged, they felt loved, they they felt motivated, they had, there was a call to action And so I pray even this morning, Lord Jesus, you know where every one of us is at as we approach this theme. And so we ask that we would encounter Jesus this morning, that we would encounter your words, and that you would do individually and corporately what you most need to do with us individually, Lord God, in our hearts, uh, to help us understand this theme of justice, to be encouraged and challenged by it. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we got three ideas this morning that I wanted to uh, sort of outline for you. Number one, what is biblical justice? What is it? Number two, why does it matter? And number three, how do we live a life of justice? So that's the basic outline. The Bible Project is one of those websites that I have loved. If you're a leader around here, you know that I've been just putting out Bible Project videos left and right in front of you. And the Bible Project has a video on this theme of justice, and I love the way it starts off. It starts off this way. It says that if you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable for you to devour your mate. That if you were a honey badger you would care less about all the other animals in the forest. And that if you were a panda and you had twins, it would be totally appropriate for you to abandon one of your twins so that you can take care of your other baby. Now, we would say, as human beings, if we were to do any of those things, that would be wrong, unfair, or unjust. We can't do that as human beings. Why is that? 
Well, it's because we have a special identity. And that on page one of the Bible, what we see is that God sets us apart as ambassadors, as representatives to reflect his image, to be image bearers of God. And so this identity as God's representatives who are to rule his world by his definition of good and evil is the foundational vision for the biblical justice that all human beings are equal before God. And so in the Bible, justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat means that we treat everyone with absolute fairness, no matter if they're old, young, male, female, black, white, healthy, wealthy, sick, or poor. And the opposite of mishpat is when people or communities or entire parts of the world find themselves in positions of power, and they have gifts, and they have well-resourced advantages, and they begin to redefine what good and evil is to keep their advantages, to keep themselves in positions of privilege and power. That's called injustice, when we use our advantages at the expense of other people. And so this injustice is a fundamental failure to represent God as his image bearers in the world around us, and it's prevalent because the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. Now there's two sides of this word, mishpat, and both of them come out in our text in Psalm 146. So I want to look at both of the ways that this word is used in Scripture. So let's start in verse 7 of Psalm 146. It says, uh, He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and he gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Now, do you see where, uh, where it says God upholds the cause? Of course you do. It's highlighted, underlined. So the phrase in the ESV and most of the other translations is he executes justice. So there's where we have the word mishpat. And notice in the passage that he does that by helping the imprisoned. God helps the blind. He helps those who are bowed down, those who are foreigners or immigrants. He helps the orphan and the widow. But then there is another part in verse 9. It says, uh, flip forward one uh, screen uh, or one slide. It says that in verse 9, he frustrates the way of the wicked. So there's two things here. And we're going to start with the second one because it's more obvious to us. We're more familiar with it. But it's this idea of retributive justice. It means that we give someone what they deserve when they've been evil and awful and wicked. When somebody breaks the law, when somebody is wicked, God frustrates and punishes the way of the wicked because he is just. And there's part of us that knows that is important. And that has to happen. And we like it that way. And so when bad guys get caught in the movies and they get what they deserve, we cheer. We say, yes. So on my Amazon Fire Stick, when I've been turning it on lately, there's been this advertisement for a movie called The Equalizer 2 with Denzel Washington. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm sure that the plot is just as complex as Equalizer 1, right? And, and here's the plot. Let me just give it to you. There's all these bad guys. And whenever a bad guy encounters Denzel Washington, they die. That's the whole plot. And I'm pretty sure the second one is just like that. 
And so I sat for a solid two hours a couple years ago watching the Equalizer 1, and every time a bad guy came across Denzel, he totally took them out. And when I left the movie theater after two hours, I felt really happy. I watched it. I felt, I felt joy. I felt peace. I felt like the world is just a better place with Denzel on the watch. And so we need more of him. And that's one side of justice, right? Bad people getting what they deserve. But then there's another side of Tamish Pot. And in this verse, we see that it's also people getting what they deserve, But what they deserve in this case is that as people who have been oppressed, they deserve fair treatment. As people who have been uh, held down or abused by unjust authority, then they deserve something as well. And it's fair treatment. It's to be taken care of and looked after. The word oppression means to keep someone or a group of people in a position of subservience or hardship, especially by the unjust exercise of authority. And so for people in that position, what it means to do justice to them is to notice them, to not overlook them, to listen to them, to befriend them, to help them, to lift them up, to treat them with dignity and honor and to make sure that they have freedom and equality because that's what they deserve as the image bearers of God. And if you want a good movie for that, Just Mercy, about Brian Stevenson, the Christian lawyer who went down to Alabama and set free a man named Robert McMillan, who was wrongly imprisoned and unfairly represented. That's a picture of Mishpat. And so in Psalm 146, God is concerned with helping out those who are wrongly imprisoned or enslaved. He's helping the blind and the sick, the compassionate. He's compassionate towards the immigrant and the orphan and the fatherless and the widow. So the theologians, they call this group of people the quartet of the vulnerable. It's anywhere in scripture that the word mishpat is used, and it's between 200 and 400 places where these four groups of people who are mentioned right alongside the word justice, the widow, the orphan, the alien or the immigrant, and the poor. And it's because that these people are the weak and the vulnerable and the easily trampled upon and the often overlooked. And so here's what we're saying. It means that justice according to the Bible, there's two sides. The first is punishing or condemning those who do the wrong thing. And then secondly, it means lifting up, caring for, taking care of the weak and the vulnerable. And that means that this vision for biblical justice is more than me simply not hurting or doing the oppressing. That if I am going to live out the vision of biblical justice, I can't just not hurt people. But actually, those who are being hurt or being overlooked or being taken advantage of, my calling to do justice is to spend my life and my time and my energy lifting them up. And so this is where things get challenging because for most of us, when we think about helping out the poor and the vulnerable, we think about that as charity. We think about that as a kind gesture with our time and our money, something that we would do that's an extra. But actually the Bible says, no, that's not charity, that's justice. That's justice. Now listen to how the word mishpat is used in the book of Job. If you remember, part of what is bothering Job 
in the book of Job is that he is upset because he believes he has lived a life of justice, and he has. And so as part of his argument towards God, he makes a list of excuses and reasons and evidence for why he's a just man. So take a look at this list in Job 31. Verse 13, he says, If I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, Verse 16, have I refused to help the poor or crush the hopes of the widow? Verse 17, have I been stingy with my food or refused to share it with orphans? Verse 18, no, from childhood I've cared for orphans like a father. All my life I've cared for widows. Verse 19, whenever I saw the homeless without clothes and the needy with nothing to wear, did they not praise me for providing wool clothing to keep them warm? If I have ever raised my hand against an orphan, knowing the judge would side with me, then rip my arm from the socket. Because, verse 28, these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Here's what Job's saying. It's not a lack of charity. That if I would have seen people without food and I don't share my own, that if I see people without clothing and I don't give them my, my fleece and my coverings and my wool, if I hadn't taken care of widows and orphans, it wouldn't have been a lack of charity. It would have been unjust, a sin against God. It would have been failure to represent and reflect God's beauty as an image bearer who's called to represent and reflect the heart and the character of a God of justice. Do you see that? <laughs> this is hard. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever slanders the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind or gracious to the needy honors God. So one Old Testament commentary that I read, I think it was Bruce Waltke, said this. That when you look at the word there for slander or contempt, that what it means is to take lightly. Or just to simply ignore. And so what we're saying is to not even notice or care. So what we're saying is that if I just ignore the poor, if I look at the poor and I look at people who are vulnerable or hurting or weak, and they have no impact on me, that I, I don't even pay attention to them, that I look the other way, then my life is not an accurate reflection of the God of justice. If they have no impact on the way I spend my, my, my time and money and life, it's not a lack of charity. It's a lack of justice. Because God is a God of justice. And if we look at the character of God and the heart of God, what we see is that we have a God who has all the resources. He has all the gifts. He has all the power. And what he does consistently from page one to the end of the Bible is he takes those resources and he dispenses them and moves them and leverages them to help the poor and the vulnerable and the broken. And so that's point number two. Why does justice matter? Because God is a God of justice. Most people would say, hey, helping poor people that's just good ethics. I mean, we know we're supposed to take care of poor people. That's the right thing to do. But Christians say it's not just good ethics. It's good theology. Because we don't care for the vulnerable because that's how good people live. It's because we want to accurately reflect and represent 
the image of God. And this is what God does. And so I want you to see in Psalm 146 how God introduces himself in our passage. This is in verse 6. It says, He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. As you just listen to that, what attributes of God come to mind for you? What do you think about when you hear verse 6? Maker of heaven and earth. He's creator. He's big. He's omnipotent. He has all power, all resources. And yet in verse 7, look at what he loves to do. He loves to take all these resources and use them on behalf of the weak, the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He helps those who are vulnerable and oppressed and powerless. And see, our first thought is that having power these days isn't such a good thing because people regularly use power for themselves. But God says, no, I have all power, but I love to use my power to help the weakest and most vulnerable in our world and society. That's what I love to do. This is who I am. Let me introduce myself. And this is the point that Keller makes in his book, Generous Justice. It's such a great point that he makes. He says that God introduces himself this way throughout the Bible. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Look at how God introduces himself. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. And look at what he does. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Then look at what he says. And you are to love those who are foreigners or immigrants, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. In other words... Your calling as the people of God, in part, is to remember who you are. To remember that you were the oppressed in Egypt. That you were the slaves. That you were the one in bondage. You were the ones who were vulnerable, making bricks all day in the hot sun as Pharaoh's slaves. And I directed all of my unlimited power and resources to set you free, to save you. That's justice. And that's what I'm about. And that's what I want you to be about as the people of God. So much so that every day when the priests got dressed to serve as mediators for the people of God, to represent God before the people and the people before God, part of what they had to do is put on, and you'll see the clothes here, this breast piece of judgment. Look at how they're decorated. Very ornate. Set apart. They didn't look like everybody else when they dressed that way. And right in the middle is called the breast piece of judgment of mishpat and there's 12 stones there and each stone represented a tribe in israel and what he says there in verse 30 you can see it on the screen put this on your shoulders in remembrance in remembrance so now that you are set apart you are to use that nature of your set apartness to remember to not overlook to not ignore to bless those who are weak this is fundamentally what it means to be the people of God. Do you see that? To, to accept bribes, to play favorites, would be to do what everybody else in power does. They adjust the rules to keep their advantages, to protect their investments, to exploit and ignore the weak and to store up for themselves, but not God. God uses all of his resources to save and help the broken, the poor, the hurting, the vulnerable. So that's why in Numbers 22, Balak is the king of Moab, and Israel is marching through Moab on their way to the promised land. 
And Balak's a little nervous about this. So he calls on Balaam, the prophet, and says, Balaam, I will give you a lot of money, silver and gold, if you will go up on the mountain and curse the people of God, wipe them out. Can you have God do that? And Balaam's like, I don't really think God works that way. I don't think you like just pay him. But you see, Balak assumes that God is on the, on the side of those who have privilege, of those who have money and resources. And so Balaam goes up and he actually, instead of cursing them, he, pray, he blesses them. And Balak says, come on, man, I thought we had a deal. And Balaam, Balaam actually says this, even if you were to give me your house, your own palace full of gold and silver, I can only do what God is interested in doing. And God is not interested in protecting the privileges and the power of people who would use their advantages for themselves. And so what does that say that God introduces himself that way? It means that it's, it's one of the main things that he's about. If I were to introduce myself to you, I would probably say something like this. Well, I'm the husband to Melissa. I've got four beautiful kids. I'm their dad. And I'm the discipleship pastor here at King's Chapel. Because that's not everything that I do in my life. I do a lot of things. But those are some of the main things that I do. And so when God introduces himself this way, he's not saying that the only thing that I do is care for the poor. But one of the main things that I do is I give grace to the helpless. I leverage my omnipotent power to help those who are weak and oppressed and vulnerable. It's so close to his heart. It's almost like his calling card. Is it ours? Is it our calling card as the people of God, as his church? So lastly, how do we begin to live a life of justice? How do we begin to live that way? I have to say that um, when people ask me, we've been here in Carrollton now for two years, and when people ask me, um, what's the best thing about your move to Carrollton? I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer, hands down. King's Chapel, this church that I get to be a part of. It's my favorite thing. It's the best thing about my move to Carrollton, hands down, because I feel so proud to be a part of a church who does things like God's Farm, where we have Larry and Lisa providing camp and leadership skills, organizing and planning, and bringing all of you involved in that as well to serve and to volunteer and give the gospel to these kids that they're not going to camp anywhere unless it's for a place like God's Farm. These are inner city kids. They come from single parent homes. They are very poor and they are easily overlooked. And God's Farm is this beautiful expression of gospel justice. I love that we have people who serve week after week with open hands, serving food to the hungry, people who serve with 12 for life and mentor at-risk kids. We have families who adopt and foster kids. We have people who work with the Pregnancy Resource Center, and we have people organizing and providing leadership to this Safe Families Initiative. And so to me, it's just so beautiful to see so many people in our community jumping in, bringing their kids along with uh, providing the hope of the gospel. Uh, and my prayer is that we could really challenge ourselves even more this year to keep going forward, to really you know, go even deeper in our commitment levels to these ministries, to go all in together so that it becomes our calling card as well. But I really believe that the only way that we can do that is if it flows out of a renewed heart, 
It can't be because we just sign up to serve in those ministries because we have to, because it's our duty. It makes us feel good to check off the box because it's something everybody else is doing. And that's what, the only way it can become our calling card is if it flows out of a heart of worship. And that's what you see in the beginning of Psalm 146. This is what David said, or this is what the psalmist says in the beginning of the passage. This has been a theme so much of this series, is the psalmist or David, whoever's doing the psalm, he, he's telling his soul things. He's preaching to his soul, right? We've seen that already. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. I'll praise the Lord all my life as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes. Here he is talking to himself again. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, hey, it's so easy to align yourself with people of power in the world, to leverage any kind of wealth and possessions and resources that I might be blessed with. So easy in my default to think of the dreams and aspirations of man in this world. And here's the psalmist saying, heart, soul, don't do that. Don't put your trust in princes. The things of this world fade so quickly, but instead find your hope in the God of Jacob, your help in God. He says, don't trust that. Don't believe that. And so once again, in this passage, here he is doing this, this transfer of trust where he takes the things that he would usually identify with and hope in for security, and he transfers that to something else. To transfer trust means that I'm identifying with, I'm sinking up, I'm putting my hope into something. That's what the word trust in the Bible means, so that when you are trusting in your chair, if I trust in this stool, then whatever happens to the stool or the chair, that's what happens to you. If it collapses, you collapse. If you put all your money in the stock market and it collapses, your money goes down too, right? So that's what it means to trust. And Psalm 146 says that when we identify with the thoughts and ambitions and the dreams of a powerful life and powerful people, that will collapse. It'll fall apart. Because God did not build a world that would be inconsistent from the way that his heart and his character instinctively flows out. And God loves justice. And so at the beginning of this psalm, he says, the beginning of a life of justice is a renewed heart to trust in the God of Jacob. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord. How do we begin to trust or identify or sink our lives up with the God of beautiful justice. And then out of that, to begin to identify with the marginalized and the weak in the community around us. So let me tell you a story. It's a familiar story. It's one that Jesus told. And it, it goes like this. It's in Luke 10. But an expert of the law, this is a guy who knew the Bible inside and out. He, he loved it. And he came up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, man, you're good at this. Like, you know the Bible. You know it really well. So you tell me. What do you think it says? And he says, I think it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that is exactly right. Go, if you will go and do that, you will live. And in the passage, this man, it says that seeking to justify himself. Now, that's fascinating. 
We've got justice questions <laughs> for this man, right? He is interested in what justice is all about for himself. He wants to make sure that the good life that he's living, that he's going to get what he deserves. And so honestly, and so what, here's what he says. He says, well, I have a second question then. If that's it, who is my neighbor? That's what he asks. He asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? And I would say honestly that that is exactly the kind of question that you and I always ask when the issue of generous justice and reaching out to the poor and the weak and the vulnerable starts to come into our heart. It's what do I do with my time and energy and resources? I want to know the limits. Who is my neighbor? Okay? Where are the boundaries? How much is too much, Jesus? Because our first instinct is to say, okay, love my neighbor, but how much? How much? And what Jesus does with this famous story, he blows away all the boundaries. He takes all the limits and he just sweeps them off the table. So we know the story. Here's what Jesus says to the question. Who's my neighbor? I got, I got a story for you. There's a man, he's a Jewish man, and he gets beaten up to a pulp, left for dead, and robbed on the side of the road. And a few hours later, a priest comes on that side of the road. He sees him, and then he walks to the other side of the road, and he leaves him there abandoned. A few minutes later, a Levite comes by. Same side of the road as this man can't deal with that, looks away, goes to the other side of the road. But a third man shows up. It's a Samaritan. And he sees this man, and he has pity on the man. He feels compassion. He emotionally identifies with this man. And he stops what he's doing, and he begins to take care of his medical needs with oil and wine and bandages. He provides transportation for him. He carries him on his own donkey and walks alongside with him, gets him to the local inn. He provide, takes care of the bill for this man. He tells the innkeeper any extra expenses that this man has, they're mine. You put them on my tab. You give them to me. Because what he's doing there is he's sinking himself up. He's identifying with this man. Now here's my question for you. When you hear that story, who do you identify with in the story? Who, who do you identify with? Do you identify with the priest or the Levite who walk off the side? Do you identify with the Samaritan who actually helps? Do you identify with the expert in the law who asks the question? I got, I got a question. Let me tell you who none of you probably identify with. The man who's beaten up on the side of the road. None of us want to identify with that person. He's helpless. He's busted up. He's broken. He's been robbed. And he's laying there on the side of the road. We will move heaven and earth and all of our resources to ever avoid being that person. But I have to tell you that part of why Jesus is telling this story is because he wants you and I and the expert in the law to know you are that man. You are that person. That's the person you should be identifying with. Because until you really begin to understand the spiritual condition, the spiritual brokenness and bankruptcy, you'll never identify yourself as the broken and the needy and the one who needs God's grace to experience the renewed heart. 
so that you will then begin to love and identify with people who are broken and hurting in our world. You'll never live out generous gospel justice. Instead, we will always be asking the question, but how much is enough? How much is enough? How much giving is enough? How much of my time is enough? And my question to that would be, and I think Jesus's as well, would be enough for what? How much is enough for what? So that you can get back to your life and the dreams that you have of what a good life in this world looks like? I want you to have a new dream. This is my dream. I want you to dream about being on mission with me, to dream about loving your neighbor as yourself, to dream about having such a wildly free heart that you would say as carefully, as urgently, as forcefully, as determined as I am to meet my own medical, transportational, educational needs and that of my kids with that same determination and force and energy and urgency, I'm, I'm doing that for other people. Whoa. <laughs> That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has just raised the bar pretty high, I would say. He's wiped the boundaries and the limits off because justice is about loving your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? How do you love your kids? And here's the point. Until we understand that our broken, in our broken spiritual condition, remember the original question, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus tells this story. What he's saying is that until you understand that you and your broken spiritual condition do not have anywhere close to what it takes to merit eternal life, to merit favor with God, to fulfill the law, then you will only seek to identify with the princes of this world. And God's answer to that problem is not to pull back the standard and not to say, well, it's okay. You're better than most. God is not giving up on his heart and vision for biblical justice because it's his character to create a world that reflects his heart and character in the way that we live and relate to that creation. He's not changing the standard, but instead in Christ, he's fulfilling the standard and providing the solution that we need for our brokenness where he comes to fulfill the law of gospel justice by faithfully identifying and syncing up with us, taking our sin and bearing it on the cross. So the passage that we read earlier in Luke 4, we read that in our, in our worship, where Jesus is introducing his ministry. Remember, he's introducing himself. He opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 is this exact, uh, Luke 4 is this exact quote of Isaiah 61. Here's what he says. Get the scene. Jesus opens up the scroll. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. That's what it says in Isaiah 61. But if you notice, in the Luke 4 passage, he doesn't say that part about the vengeance of the Lord, proclaiming the vengeance of our Lord. Instead, it says that he rolled the scroll up. He gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. And then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so the reason that Jesus did not 
come to proclaim vengeance is because God's vengeance against the injustice of the world, against my injustice, against your injustice, against your neighbor, mine against my neighbor, to act to accurately represent and reflect the God of all creation. My failure to do that is the biggest injustice of the world. And God is saying here that I have not come to proclaim that vengeance, but to take the vengeance of God towards that upon myself. And today it's fulfilled in your hearing because it's on the cross where God says there's no limits. There's no boundaries to how much I love you and how much I'm willing to do to rescue you in your sin and brokenness and poverty so that you can be identified with me and the riches of my infinite grace. And when we meditate on that and when we say to our souls, don't trust in the hope of this world, don't trust in the princes of this world, but instead put your trust in the God of Jacob, in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. Put your trust in the one who helps you, who loves you, the God of justice. When we transfer our trust in that direction, then and only then will we live out of a renewed heart, out of a heart that finds the Spirit of God working and bringing out the divine resources of love and energy and motivation to move out into our community in radically unselfish ways, generous ways, and to reveal this radical justice of God in our community. What a beautiful mission that God has for us to reflect the justice of God, and every single one of us gets to be a part of it together. What a huge, beautiful calling. My prayer is that it would be our calling card. So let's pray for that together. Lord, as I say all that, um, you know this week the kind of heart work that you've been doing inside of me, the conviction that I've felt, the helplessness and sense of failure that I've had to live a, a life of justice and to um, come anywhere close to fulfilling this standard. And so this week I've looked a lot at Jesus and I've been blown away that you came and identified with the poor by being born into a poor family, living a life where you had no home, that the clothes that you wore were given to you constantly everywhere you went, the food you ate was provided for you at every turn. You were truly the God who identified with the poor and lived that life. And so I want to claim again and transfer my trust into the hope of the God of Jacob who sent his son to work on my behalf and to live out a life of justice and then to take upon himself my sin and my transgression on the cross of Jesus Christ and to pay the penalty for my injustice. God, I look to you again. You are the God of Jacob. You are Jesus. You are the, the God of Mishpat. And I need that in my life today. And I thank you that you have provided it for me. And my prayer for us in our church, God, is that this really would be the way that we live in the world around us and that you would get our hands and our minds off of the advantages and the privileges that we want to hold on to and protect. You didn't do that. 
You let go and you moved all your resources in the direction of those who are most broken. And that's me, that's us. We pray that you would renew our hearts and make us a people of justice for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in that peace and have a great Lord's day. Amen.